0: Hello there. Clearview AI is the facial recognition startup behind a global regulatory storm. The premise is very simple. Clearview's vast database of images scraped from the internet can be used by law enforcement agencies to identify suspects in serious crimes. Many police swear by it, claiming that the technology has helped them to solve the toughest and most disturbing crimes. But privacy watchdogs, in particular those outside the US, say that Clearview's technology is deeply problematic. Among the concerns is that the US-based company fails to obtain consent for the use of images it stores. The regulatory backlash may be justified, even predictable, yet the public pressure for police to solve crimes remains as high as ever, prompting some soul-searching about whether facial recognition technology, or FRT, will at some stage have to play a role in law enforcement. Welcome to a special edition of the Mlex podcast. I'm James Paniki, an Mlex senior editor, and today an exclusive interview with the person behind Clearview, founder and executive officer Juan Tom Thatt. In the course of this 30-minute conversation, we'll cover Clearview's highs and lows and more importantly, the road ahead for the tech company. Just a quick glossary for non-U.S. listeners before we start, the acronym NIST stands for National Institute of Standards and Technology. To speak with Juan Tom That, here's MLEC's global digital risk correspondent, Mike Swift.
1: Juan, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, you guys uh, have really shaken up the privacy world at Clearview AI. And, and you know, I wanted to just start uh, your seven years into your com- company and, you um, Um, your business has faced a lot of legal challenges in the United States and around the world. And I wonder if you could just give me a sense of how you think that fight is going at this point. Uh, Hi, Mike,
2: thanks for having me on. It's a great honor to be here uh, on your show. And uh, yes, we have been part of the debate, maybe the center of the debate on privacy and facial recognition and the use in law enforcement and AI and all those things. So, um, you know, we've been in the eye of the storm I think today we've gotten through a lot of misconceptions on a media perception level about how facial recognition is really used. And I also think we've you know, achieved a turning point now with our litigation. So if you wanna know what Clearview is, we're a facial recognition search engine now searching over 40 billion images from the public internet. So think of it like a Google for faces and we sell it uh, only to government and law enforcement Uh, to help solve crime in an after the fact manner. So it's public data, you know, for public safety. And, um, you know, in uh, early 2020, the New York Times wrote a front page story with the title, the company that ends privacy as we know it. What people might not know is we only had 10 full-time employees at that point. And just going back, I think we had over 25 lawsuits or something like that. Um, From those in 2020, We haven't had any new privacy lawsuits since 2021. Um, And then we have only essentially two of those remaining now. So getting through all the litigation and and winning those or settling those has been uh, a big challenge for us, but I'm happy to say that we're through it. And then we're proud to come to the other side.
1: That seems like a pretty significant statement. Um, There are still a few suits out there, right? I, I know you have a big settlement in Illinois and you've got a good ruling in Vermont as well but you really feel like you're pretty much behind you now.
2: Yeah, for the most part, there's always, any, any kind of company, especially one that's high profile, there's always gonna be new litigation. You can never predict the future, obviously. But uh, of, of the cases where you know there could be a lot of liability, uh, for example, the MDL in Illinois, um, we've come to agreements with the plaintiff. We still have to go through a process with the judge and so on. Uh, but that's a really big deal for us because There's potentially a lot of liability there and it's a very strong statute as everyone knows in the privacy world and then you have the other bucket of uh, litigation which is the overseas ones Uh, we don't do business in the eu australia uk or canada but uh, the ruling we got in the court of appeals i haven't got the name correct in the uk basically affirmed what we believed all along that we're not subject to jurisdiction Uh, by these foreign countries as we don't do business there. So I'd say, you know, that bucket of cases, it's the same, you know, kind of law as the GDPR. It's the UK's GDPR. And so we, you know, think that applies to all the other European uh, uh, cases that go on. So in terms of, you know, what I focus on day to day, I was focusing a lot more on legal and litigation, but I say in the past year and a bit, there's been a lot less of my time focused on that and more focused on you know, growing the business.
1: Can you give me a sense of the business in terms of you know, how many faces do you have currently have in your database? Um, how many uh, law enforcement agencies do you do business with at this point? Can you just give me a sense of your growth in that sense?
2: Yeah, so we now have uh, over 40 billion images in our database. So back in 2020, we started with you know, 3 billion images. And what we noticed is that customers always want more information or more data. So every photo that we have is a clue to help solve a crime or to help save a child, or in the case in Ukraine, identify somebody who's a war criminal. Um, in the case of public defenders, identify a potential witness it could exonerate somebody. So the more data we collect, the higher what we call a hit rate, chance that a customer gets a true positive result and is able to solve the crime. And so even at 40 billion, we've noticed how hit rate go up substantially, but there's still uh, more to do. And you know that can help identify someone or and uh, again, not just for identifying criminals but also uh, for exonerating people as well and in terms of the business, um, you know we've been growing you know quite quickly, especially in our state and local business now, where in the u s and then you know the federal business is really growing as well it's also at an inflection point where a lot of these u s federal government customers have gone through their privacy policies, training policies around facial recognition, and so on. There's been four Government Accountability Office reports on facial recognition use within the government, Um, and it's something in the federal government, I mean specifically, and it's something that's got more acceptance over time. And I think part of that is because we did a lot of work engaging with regulators, members of Congress, attorneys, generals, and the media, um, and highlighting some of the really positive things, such as the ability to help uh, law enforcement identify the January 6th Capitol rioters, or I work in Ukraine that I think has put a lot of people who are skeptical about the technologies and the intentions of the company really at ease. So
1: um, yeah, I think it's still just really the beginning for us as a company. You know, Judge Torres' opinion of Vermont uh, late last year was interesting because it recounted some of the benefits of Clearview services. And because of that, she said the evidence what really wasn't before her wasn't sufficient to rule for or against the state and that a jury would really have to do that. In your view, what is really the biggest benefit of Clearview services? You've kind of hinted at them a little bit already. Yeah, I think just a lot of crime
2: that happens. Uh, the cost of crime is really high. The GAO had a report just in the U.S. for all the things related to crime that we spend money on. It's the highest estimates, 1.5 trillion a year. Um, so that includes security cameras, the judicial system, all that kind of work to, to, to stop or combat crime. And so if we can make a dent in that, which I think we really do, uh, that's a great positive contribution to humanity. So I really think that its usefulness um, is, is there. And our customers, we have just one of the highest renewal rates of any software as a service companies out there. Uh, they really love the product and they kind of go to bat for us in certain legislatures or with, with Congress, you know, maybe a bit behind the scenes, but they do uh, stick up for us in our technology. Um, a lot. So I think the evidence is there. I mean, since Clearview has been written about, uh, you know, we've been operating for quite a while. And from what we hear from outside, we just had, you know, tons of testimonials that have come in from uh, our customers about how it saves time and it helps, you know, solve crimes that it would have never been solved otherwise. We have stories of, you know, 20-year-old cold cases that finally um, law enforcement's been able to get leads on or um, missing children and uh, a lot of those kind of stories. So that's very gratifying for us as a company.
1: What's different about Clearview's facial recognition algorithm that makes it so accurate? I mean, you mentioned that you have 40 billion faces. So that's multiple images for everybody on the planet. Um, is that it? Is it? What's, what's your secret sauce and how did you figure out how to do that? The combination.
2: We're the first company and really the only company to figure out crawling the internet um, and using that as a Uh, a search set. So previously when you bought any facial recognition as a law enforcement agency or anyone, you'd buy the algorithm and you'd load your own data set in there. So if you're a, a local sheriff's office you'd have your, you know, arrest records but you wouldn't know the arrest records of a criminal who say was out of state or from a different country. So we originally, I'm a software engineer by background, I was collecting this data to train a better algorithm to make something more accurate. Um, and so there's two parts of it. One is the accuracy of the algorithm, which has been highly rated by NIST. And the reason why we've got more and more accuracy is because we use more and more training data. And of like other AI technologies like GPT-3 uh, and GPT-4, a lot of the advances come from, let's try 10 times the amount of training data to see if our accuracy goes up. And that typically really works really well. And that's accuracy across all demographics, right? So. If, you know, we collect data of South Asian faces and African faces and so on, we notice that the accuracy across those demographics goes up. So NIST has rated our algorithm for the hardest search on NIST, uh, the one to N, 12 million mugshot search. And Clearview's at a 99.85% accuracy rate for that. So that's much better than the human eye. So it's not just us, but there's other algorithms that have done quite well on NIST as well. Um, But the key part to it is this data set, and that's what makes it so compelling for law enforcement and government to solve crime.
1: Do you expect going forward that you'll be able to, just in the future, be able to do business outside the U.S., or do you think you'll be really limited to the U.S. because of existing privacy laws?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, you know, we would take everything on a case-by-case basis, so there's a lot of demand for us from around the world, and uh, where we are able to operate and we've take a look and see if it's if it's worth doing right so i think the eu is something that you know we don't do business there we've looked at it there are exemptions for law enforcement or if someone is designated a competent authority for data collection but that being said there's still uh, too much uncertainty and we have no plans to uh, enter the eu and that's one area that you know we really don't have plans to go into it's kind of unfortunate because early on uh, with clearview before anyone knew about us. It was Homeland Security and FBI um, saving children with this uh, technology. And they showed it to the law enforcement from all around the world. And so we had requests for demo accounts from Australia, Canada, and UK and parts of the EU. And, and they were saving children with it. So uh, some of these UK agencies, it's heartbreaking for them to email us and say, hey, you know, we really would love to use you for a case. I have an email. that. And read from. We are seeking contact with you to utilize your capability in a particularly harrowing child sex abuse case. Uh, we're of the view that results would have helped demonstrate accuracy and strengthen this case for future use. And this is in you know a jurisdiction where we're unable to operate. And so we know that law enforcement in all these countries really want to use the technology and they would use it responsibly, especially for uh, these things. But uh, at the current time, and I didn't. You know, I don't see anything changing. And we have the EU AI Act and other uh, things like that, where um, I think Europe is taking a different view on not just data privacy,
1: but AI and technology in general. Can you tell me which other countries you do operate in now, or which ones you have might have plans to expand? Yeah. So publicly, it's known we're operating in Ukraine, but
2: uh, we don't have anything um, to announce at this time regarding other countries. Okay. So.
1: Anywhere else? You know? Israel or? Yeah, we don't have
2: anything to announce at this time or regarding. Okay. You'll be the first to know.
1: Um, tell me a little bit more about you. I, I'm, I th- You seem like a really fascinating person. Um, I know you're a fantastic musician, honored guitarist when you were growing up in Australia. Um, you've lived in a bunch of different places, had time in Silicon Valley after growing up in Australia. Um, you're smart, but a lot of our people are smart. Uh, how did you kind of make this quantum leap with, with the FRT? Yeah, so I guess I had a different life path than a lot of people, right?
2: Uh, so I grew up in Australia. My dad is from Vietnam originally, and my mom's Australian. And growing up, I just loved computers. My dad was a professor as well, and he let me mess around with his computers. I think one day I deleted all his files. He didn't get upset. Um, and, <laughs> you know, he just let me play around with them. So, yeah, when we got the Internet when I was 10, I was fascinated by that and really wanted to learn how to become a programmer and make, instead of like playing games, making games and things like that. So I looked at open source software. I got Linux installed when I was a kid uh, and just really fascinated by it. And my mom actually wanted me to become a professional guitarist because I loved playing guitar as well, but I, I did tell her, mom, I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. I want to you know uh, do something great with computers. And she was a little confused. So it's the opposite of most parents. I had a lot of freedom growing up to kind of do what i want and then yeah i would I'd hear about you know silicon valley and startup companies and and you know i was they did one year of college in australia i didn't really enjoy it i felt like wrongfully or correctly i already know all this computer stuff and ended up visiting the bay area when i was 19 and it was an amazing place that's where all these startup companies get started uh, you can see Twitter when there were five people, or Square when there were nine people, and eventually they become really big things. So culturally, it's the best place for innovation and startups, uh, and it continues to be the case. So um, yeah, I, you know, getting into selling to government and facial recognition, I never thought that would be a thing. Um, after spending eight years in the Bay Area, ended up moving to New York where we started Clearview. But, it's very rewarding. Before I was working on consumer apps and games and things like that. And you could look at those and say, Oh wow, people have played, you know, five lifetimes of your game. And it's cool, but it's not satisfying. Uh, when we have a user that's you know emails us saying we've, you know, saved a child or we've, you know, caught a bad criminal, that's you know, really rewarding. So in some ways, as a tech person I found a mission that was worthwhile. I could convince other people to join the company and work on it. And so, yeah, that's really satisfying, but um, took a different path for most people, but really enjoy what we do every day and get to learn a lot.
1: Was it your ambition, I mean, that you really wanted to kind of change the world? I, I mean, that, that sort of drove you. I mean, I know you were pretty poor for a long time, just reading reading about you and uh, when you first moved to Silicon Valley. That's a great question. I liked, after a while, I realized I liked making things, right? And building
2: technology. So a lot of the early, games after a while that weren't working out. And, you know, uh, if you have a startup company and you're not making a lot of money, it's not not that fun, to be honest. And a lot of people talk about changing the world in the Bay Area, but not many of them really actually mean it. So over time, you do get a little jaded there. Oh, that guy is changing the world. No, he really wants to pay it. You can kind of tell after a while. So I remember when we were going through Clearview and we originally built something that did facial recognition for buildings, building security first. And then someone in the building security world said, you should give this to the police where I used to work, uh, this other app that we built. And you know they started solving crimes. And that's when I realized, yeah, we're unironically changing the world. And I think that it's a rare thing to have in a startup company. A lot of startup companies, they're derivative. They do something that someone else does. They find it hard to recruit. And so even though we have our fair share of issues and problems, we don't have that problem in terms of finding something that's, you know, worth working on. So um, it's satisfying. It does change the world. And when we look at it and we think when this technology is more applied in, you know, more and more law enforcement agencies, it's going to have a really big impact on reducing crime. Um, And that's something that myself and our team are like very happy to dedicate a lot of our lives to, to working on.
1: So, I guess I'm hearing you say you didn't realize that Clearview might be a tool for law enforcement from the beginning, it was something you sort of stumbled into as as you developed it. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't
2: have any law enforcement in my family, I have accounted recently, 35 cousins, none of them are in law enforcement. So, it wasn't really, uh, we really did stumble into it. Um, But when we realized, okay, in the first week or two weeks, uh, one of these agencies could identify 19 people who committed financial fraud. And one of that, that first case I think was 35 million in fraud they could end up recovering. And then the next week they caught a pedophile. There's no way you couldn't get motivated by that no matter who you are, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So a lot of our motivation comes from from our customers. So nothing to do
1: really with your politics or your background and uh, your dad coming from Vietnam? No, no, it's been
2: been a good uh, eye-opening thing to see how People in law enforcement actually work on their cases, how dedicated they are, how smart they are. Um, and so it's been a
1: different view I've had of them than most people, which has been great. Do you think people should have any expectation of privacy or anonymity when they're in public? That's a great like uh, question. There's
2: a legal answer, which I think is easier. Uh, obviously, there's been precedents around taking photos in public way before there was the internet. And now with the internet, if you have something on public you expect that search engines can pick it up. So Facebook and Instagram, all the social media sites, LinkedIn, they have a little option, show me in search engines, yes or no. And if it's yes, it will show up in Google, but it will also show up in Clearview. So I think, yeah, on the legal side, it's actually pretty clear cut. On the, you know, human and feel side, it's a little different. If I'm on the subway or going somewhere, you know, I'm in my, sometimes I'm in my own world, you're not really thinking you're in public. But in, in practice, could this technology be used? right? So people's worries are like, OK, someone can sift through all this data and track me no matter where I am. But in reality, with how, you know, for example, law enforcement use Clearview, they're using it you know, after the fact right? and all that stuff. And so you know, if some horrible terrorist attack happened in New York again, I think a lot of people would say, OK, yes, please go through the archives that you have in maybe the last 30 days or more to, to find the person. So in practice, I think uh, law enforcement and government, especially with the way the Fourth Amendment is done and other protections that are in place, uh, they use the technology when needed and judiciously. They're not using it all the time. Um, And so I think that in practice, there is quite a good balance about, you know, all those uh, uh, times you are in public, you know, where that information goes.
1: So let me ask you an ethical not necessarily a legal question, um, about scraping. If I provide my photo to Venmo so I can sell my bike, say, why is it okay for Clearview to take that image and use it for something I wasn't aware of and didn't consent to when I provided it to Venmo? I mean, the simple answer is like, it's public, right? Um,
2: You have a Venmo option to have a public profile, private profile. I do think Venmo made a mistake, honestly, by having profiles be public by default. Uh, when they started, they thought there'd be a social payment app, and then they eventually just evolved into a normal payment app. So most other payment platforms, you don't have a user profile, like Square Cash and so on. But in the context of solving crime, which I think is really interesting, uh, where, you know, that photo could be a clue for someone to solve a, a money laundering case, and even have to be money laundering any kind of uh, criminal case, that Uh, risk that the information is misused or, you know, anything like that is much, much slimmer than if anyone could search anyone's face and get access to their, you know, Venmo history. So, so to say, the other thing that you can say is, well, someone could type in that person's name into Google, like Mike Smith, uh, Mike Swift, Venmo. And if you're public, you'd show up there as well. So you know, a lot of us, not us, but like a lot of people in general, still use search engines to find information about people on a you know daily basis all the time.
1: So just to sort of talk a little bit more about scraping, um, obviously, as you know, it's a very big business. It's uh, there are probably thousands of companies that do it. It's certainly not just Clearview, and and um, it's obviously very critical. But are you concerned about privacy laws I mean, uh, that might be passed that could block you from, from scraping? And that would really put a dent in your business, it seems.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. We engage a lot with state legislatures just to educate them on what Clearview is and what it isn't. And now we have a lot more privacy regulation around the country. Um, mm-hmm. And we do process opt-outs and deletion requests in California and other states that are coming online. I would say that a lot of these laws do have exemptions for public data written into them, right? So, uh, or they have an exemption for law enforcement usage. And I think the reason, the first reason is maybe there's a First Amendment argument against that being unconstitutional. But regardless of that, uh, there's a lot of utility for not just something that Clearview does for law enforcement, but say journalists are doing investigative research um, and they're crawling data. Uh, to to, co- to collect information. Most recently, actually, ACLU and the NAACP, I think two years ago or something, sued, I believe, the state of South Carolina. I can't remember exactly. Because they were banning, state of South Carolina was banning ACLU from scraping data around rental, I think it was rental properties. And the state was blocking it. But this, this is critical for them to do their research on discrimination and so on and so forth. And I believe there was another guy from Harvard Law uh, who actually had a case Sandvig versus Barr, versus for you know getting the ability to crawl Facebook in order to see uh, you know how they're displaying ads and how it could impact discrimination. So that's just one use case where that's those are other things that are in the public good. And so it's hard to know in advance all the you know public good that's out there that could be done with public information. But it's the bedrock of how Google works and how you can find information. Or on finding a doctor or a dentist or anyone in your area uh, or any kind of information with it, so I think it's a good uh, public policy thing to have exemptions for public data though so we haven't actually really seen any state laws that would even proposed ones that prevent that kind of um, collection and then you have you know some cases where people have tried to use a computer a fraud and abuse act to prevent scraping but right. uh, the distinction that it's come down to now is like, did you do it? While creating an account to break the terms of service, or did you do it completely what they call logged out? And we do only logged out crawling. And so, you know, we think we're fine there as well.
1: Um, You know, as you know, many studies in the past have shown that uh, FRT has been less accurate for people of color and for women than it was for, say, white males. Um, Have you guys solved that problem? And if so, how? Yeah, it's a good question.
2: I would say the director of NIST, Charles Ramein, in 2019, testified in front of Congress. And NIST, if people don't know, uh, have a facial recognition vendor test ranking, I think, over 600 vendors and how accurate they are. And he said, of the top performing algorithms, there's a negligible difference between demographics. Let's put it this way. They met, it's a very comprehensive report, and they measure all types of demographics. So we're 99% accurate across all demographics as measured by NIST. Also, they have some really hard tests. The one-to-end mugshot test: can you pick a photo out of, you know, 12 million mugshots? Where we're 99.85% accurate for that. Uh, some people, uh, you will see headlines saying, "No, the NIST has shown that there's huge demographic biases or something like that." But if you go into what they're citing in this, they're citing the bottom 50 or the bottom algorithms. So in practice, with the you know new algorithms now, I think even the top 50, top 100 have over 99% accurate for the one to N test out of 12 million. So the technology is really there. I think people are starting to understand that it's there, especially when they see something like Clearview. And so that kind of only solves half of the issues that come up. I think concerns come into two buckets. One is, is it accurate across demographics technically? But two is a lot of privacy advocates will say, or more social justice people who might not trust law enforcement, even if it's accurate, does it make policing more biased? And I think the second question is really interesting because we have a database that is of everyone, right? So it's not biased uh, against, say, a facial recognition database that only had mugshots. So there's an argument to be made that facial recognition, especially when used ac- accurate facial recognition with decreases police interaction, that's unnecessary. Otherwise, what's the alternative? People will have be on the lookout for this person with a name, not a name, like a description, uh, race, gender, uh, tattoos, clothing, all that kind of stuff. And if you're using just that, which is the default for most law enforcement, you're gonna be pulling over people that match the description that might not be the person. So I think it will bear out in the long run that this does help uh, decrease bias in policing as well and prevent unneeded interactions.
1: In Australia, the privacy regulators ordered, ordered Clearview to stop operate, operating and purge your system of all Australian faces. Have you been able to do that?
2: Yeah, I can't comment on it too much legally. And I'm from Australia, so it is heartbreaking that the country I'm from, you know, decided that this is the technology that they don't want in the country. Even though, you know, there's been success really early on from uh, different police agencies in Australia for, you know, saving children, I would say that There's no way from us from a certain photo uh, is, imagine you're at a party and there's a group photo with you and your friends on Instagram to know if that particular person or that face is an Australian citizen or resident. So there's no way for us to actually know, therefore like try and remove all Australian people. Uh, I could be an Australian resident living in New York, right? I could be an Australian resident traveling and visiting Italy, or I could be, even if the photo's taken in Australia, I could be a US resident in Australia. So unless we have and we don't have uh, citizenship data tied to photos, there's no way for us to really know if someone's Australian or not. Um, Also, these orders, you know, we're not in the jurisdiction of Australia, Uh, we don't do business there and so on. Um, And uh, I think the only thing the judge ruled, I have to double check this with my legal team and everything was, you know, just prevent collection of data from Australian IP addresses. So if a server is located in Australia, and that's the uh, rule the judge had. And the thing is, Australian people could be on, say, Instagram or Facebook, where it is public, and those servers are hosted in the United States. So I think there's just a lot of interesting questions about how these things uh, could apply, you know, cross-jurisdictionally, but also, like, you know, for us in practice, how do we even know which is collecting public data which comes with links and it's only used in the context of solving crime so you know i think the uh, privacy issues that could come up uh, are very very minimized because of the controls of input on how this technology is used and deployed
1: do you think in 20 years time or 30 years time that facial recognition will just be recognized as normal and you mentioned that the camera created a stir when People got cameras and started photographing people in public. Um, is this just another example of that, or is it something different? I think it.
2: If you look through the history of technology, that's how almost every technology has come about. You know, the Kodak camera. Uh, people were worried about you know people taking photos too much. I think even this, uh, just as Justice Brandeis didn't like it, and uh, you see that with the word processor. You see it with things that we take for granted every day. So I do believe facial recognition. It already is part of our lives in terms of unlocking our phones very everyone's very comfortable with that and over time i do believe that it is and the acceptance of a technology is a good thing it means that society has kind of decided hey this has some utility uh that you know it's become uh something that's accepted everywhere so we see that with law enforcement like they're like this is part of our daily toolkit now to help solve crime is facial recognition and the industry would only exist if there is utility, if people are paying for it. And I think that uh, all the concerns we can address, like, uh, and we're very pro-regulation, right? And, um, you know, electricity, there's like a lot of funny stories early on where people would be plugging in, they'd have light bulbs, but plugging their washing machine to a light bulb socket, because there weren't sockets out there. (laughs) And some, a lot of the stories that the early early automobile, uh, so there's some interesting stuff there. But uh, fundamentally, like the automobile, I think is a great example of how regulation over time did make things safer, seat belts, airbags. Some of the people in the industry resisted it. Um, but you know you can drive a car from A to B, which is what most people want to do. You can also drive it to uh, crash into a building or to crash into someone, or you could be a drunk driver. And so as the technology developed, legislators figured out what we wanted to encourage and what we want to you know, discourage, and they came up with appropriate laws. And I think the same thing will happen with a lot of technology in general, and I hope with facial recognition as well. And I think over the last, you know, few years, uh, since all the controversy, we've been able to at least highlight a lot of the positive sides of it. And you know, people who are judicious uh, legislators, leg- legislative people, understand that, and they want to craft regulation that, you know, protects the very positive sides of it, but also prevents any kind of downside that could happen.
0: And that was Clearview AI founder and executive officer Juan Tom That. He was speaking with Mike Swift, MLEX global digital risk correspondent, who was coming to us from San Francisco. You'll be able to read the MLEX stories based on that interview at our usual website address, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. This special podcast was produced and edited by me, James Panicki, brought to you with the assistance of Nikki Pusamia in Brussels. And from everyone here at Mlex and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. We'll have more special podcasts for you in coming weeks. Bye for now.